When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the one and only Mr. Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, which if you haven't read by now and you haven't bought by now, uh, go fuck yourself. Um, Roger's got on a, one of my shirts, uh, an original design in the TPC merch store. The, the merch store uh, link will be in the description, as always, and uh, as will Roger's book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. And uh, I think it's the best sci-fi uh, book ever written. I think it's the best take on the singularity, the technological singularity, and really the only book I think out there that tackles the problem or the question of, or even just the the, the hypothetical reality of a post-singularity world. We often see the technological singularity as this endpoint, but no one really ever goes into it. They just go, yeah, and that's what the moment when it will take off forever. And then we just think, well, what happens when it takes off? Everyone and then goes, we all live happily. Everyone just goes, yeah, you know. It's like, well, what do you mean? Eh, whatever. When the technology when the technology becomes stronger than God, what happens? And everyone's like, yeah, that's just the end. And it's like, that's the beginning. So, on that note, Roger and I, and by Roger and I, I mean Roger, is going to entertain us with another one of his readings. And I believe we are in Curators. This will be part five. Yes, this will be your fifth, and uh, from the original Reddit publication it will be part 21 because they were part uh each episode so we're gonna get right into it let's jump right into it i have as i told roger beforehand i've got a, a heart out and i don't want to cut him off while he's reading yeah. and so and i don't want to keep kicking this off and, we've been putting these off indefinitely for months so i'm being strict <laughs> i'm being strict with myself and um, no, we're doing it. We're getting into the reading. I hope you're feeling better because last time you were like, I was on death's door last Sunday. I slept for about two straight days this weekend, and I am feeling much better. I'm still pretty tired, but I'm feeling much better. It's uh, yeah, yeah, uh, the yeah. I mean, it's it's like everybody's been sick. I mean, it's like not even COVID. It's just being sick. Just you know, stomach flu, whatever it was. So, uh, all right, let's do this thing. All right, The Curators, Part 21. Four years after our last episode. Analysis. Oh. Yeah, I think I have a pointing device. It had been six months with M working on some super secret project she couldn't even talk to me about, and me doing diplomatic missions. I'd learned to fly, and even though it wasn't official and I have no business being near an airplane, much less a starship, the director had decided on his own authority that my skills were sufficient to take the control of a machine that costs tens of millions of dollars to build and guide it to the stars. The flying part was a little easier for me. 
because when you're coming in from space, you can pick a landing spot that has good weather and daylight. Still, not all of the alien airstrips are up to human standards, and some care is necessary. But my function was mostly diplomatic and commercial. Humans weren't settling our number one product, the miniature coal drive, to other races just yet, because it still cost us over $10 million to build one. And we were absorbing our entire production of one every month or so. But we were using the ships that we built to provide a service lots of races were willing to pay for. Next day, delivery. For Aeons, the rule was that interstellar travel took about a month. The actual journey for the old ship only took a day or two, but because the ships were so large and couldn't land, folding and unloading, uh, unloading them from orbit could take weeks. It was an enormous logistical nightmare that no one had ever really solved. But then along come humans for her price can be there in less than a day. Pick up your load, whether it's an emergency disaster relief or guests for a royal wedding, and have you to your destination in just a few more hours. We had far more requests for business than we had ships to provide service. And about 40 human employees just working on appropriate methods of payment that we could usefully accept. Most of the galaxy didn't use money and we had to establish products and raw materials that made sense as barter. We also had people working on what we were pretty sure would become a galactic bank because the barter thing was becoming such a pain in the ass. But now Em was done with her secret mission and we had some time together. When I met her, I saw that our friendly human form curator was already there too. You said you had something really special to show me, I seized. I thought it would involve less clothes later for that. We can always boink, but you don't always get to see the first of a new generation of Starship. M led us out behind the hangar where a really strange craft was parked. Had three somewhat normal-looking aircraft hulls linked by connecting tunnels and struts, and it was sitting on pylons instead of wheeled landing gear. Good ship Trinity, M said, by way of introduction. I thought you were an atheist, the curator said. She's named after the character from The Matrix. So our next level interstellar craft is a trimaran, I teased. M laughed. You should be so glad you weren't involved with those discussions. We're obviously still using a lot of aircraft parts because they're readily available. But Trinity was never an actual airplane. Cylinders are still the second best shape for pressure containment, vessel that has to maintain atmospheric pressure in space. We could have used a single bigger one, but that would have been more vulnerable. Trinity's three hulls can be isolated from one another. We've been in shooting wars, remember. All four connecting tunnels can be isolated and used as airlocks. Her primary piloting station is in the center hole with the large transparent forward hemisphere, but she can be piloted by anywhere from uh, by wire. And the safety glass windows and the side holes are much stronger than the primary cockpit transparent dome. She's a prototype. And in this form, her left hull is configured for passenger service and her right for cargo with the classic C-130-style rear cargo door. 
The middle hull is propulsion, engineering, and logistics. How does she get to the ground without wings, I asked. The curator smiled as Em answered. You know, the biggest surprise getting our payment for the Seville Folan Hibber was that gravity plating is yet another fold application. It's like the microfold we use for communication, the sunlight cannon, the power reactor, but it's even more restrictive and only passes gravitons. We had no proof gravitons even existed, and now we're using them. I thought it would take a particle accelerator the size of the solar system to detect them, I said. It did, curator said. So gravity plating scarfs up gravitons from all sources through a really detuned microfold, as does levitation plating, which is gravity plating turned upside down and backward, <laughs> which is what powers the flying cars. But we realized that we could use the same principle in a tuned fashion, since we're making our own fold hardware. So we can make a gravity microfold to some place with really usefully intense gravity flux, like a neutron star. Trinity doesn't have to fold out to Neptune and then fall to adjust its velocity. It can fold Neptune's gravity to wherever it is. And even better, it can fold the gravity of the sun or a neutron star or black hole to wherever it is. Trinity can accelerate at over a hundred gravities. Once we have controls perfected, we should be able to take off from Earth, match velocity with Katagat, fold over and land in about an hour. That sounds a bit dangerous, I said. Actually, it isn't, the curator said. We once made ships similar to this. Since the gravity field affects all particles of the ship equally, there are no tidal forces or internal acceleration. Should the drive fail, the ship would simply stop accelerating. There's no hazard of mismatched correction, and the Graviton microfold doesn't pass any of the other extreme environmental hazards. Have you done any of this stuff yet? Space trials only, M said. I wanted to offer both of you the chance to be with me for the first real journey. I accept gratefully, the curator said. And I guess I do too because it was on a relatively short shock-absorbing pylons instead of tall landing gear, Trinity's connecting tunnel hatches folded down into staircases that neatly met the ground. Where are we going? I asked as Em fired up the ship's systems. I was going to ask for suggestions. I do have one, the curator said. Do you have pressure suits on board? Of course. I have been asked to do an errand, which would normally involve bothering those curators who are keepers of our powerful technology. But if the ship can land on an airless world, we could let them sleep. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's start by landing on a closer airless world. We sat in the jump seats behind him and the center fuselage of the piloting station Trinity arose serenely from the surface of the earth and tilted upward and shot forward vertically for a few minutes until we were in the blackness of space. No fold maneuvers were necessary to divest ourselves of Earth's air. When we were well into space, M folded us out to Earth's moon. 
at the moon, we adjusted velocity in seconds and descended until we were looking down at the descent stage and flag for an Apollo mission. I'm not going to actually touch down and desecrate this place. I wouldn't have come here at all if I had to use thrusters to descend. But this is the landing place of Apollo 17. We are the first people to see it with our own eyes since Cern and Schmidt left here in 1972. This is great honor, our curator said, and I think he meant it. Where do we go from here, I asked. If I may, the curator said, there is an outer world with the Seville system where I have a chore to do. It's well outside of the reach of your fold inhibitor, which is why it's there. Em folded us off to the Seville system. At the curator's directive, she homed in on a spot on this fourth rocky planet, a frozen wasteland similar to Ceres. There was a modest-sized machine on the surface with a small array of stick antennas. After we touched down, the curator suited up, went out to the device, and touched it with an object he had brought with him. Minutes later, he was back in the ship. That's our back-channel relay, he said after unsuiting. The natives have no knowledge of it. It's entirely for the use of our stay-behind curators, but they had been getting some interference from local radio transmissions. We had quite forgotten to give our people the ability to reprogram its frequency profile remotely, since we're kind of used to doing these things in person. The program update I just performed fixes that for them. You've been getting updates from Seville. How, what the hell is happening there? Well, let's go somewhere that serves alcohol to discuss that. My agents have told me of an excellent pub on Kattegat, and I hear the two of you have no need to pay for drinks on that world. Of course, the space traffic directors of Kattegat expected us to need the roof of the power station for rolling landing. And they were surprised when we asked for a courtyard of modest dimensions in the city near a certain trendy address. This was quickly arranged, and it was indeed about an hour after the curator updated his relay that we touched down in a small vacant lot between two very earth-like wooden buildings. We walked around a few corners and found the pub. Over large glasses of a rich fermented beverage, the curator told us what had happened after the inhibitor went online. Nearly all of the power failed, of course, he said. We get used to using the fold drop repeaters because, like hydroelectric, they work all the time. But nanites can also make good photovoltaic and supercapacitor power storage stations. Civilians knew that their uh, hardship was a punishment and didn't waste time lamenting it. They set about dismantling their now useless fold drop repeaters and building solar fields and batteries. Most of the planet was without power for less than a year. And they managed to save that year's agricultural crops, so there was no famine. I'm glad it wasn't a lot of death, I said. Well, the crews of the two orbiting fold ships had no way home. As you know, the repulsor plating is fold-based. They said their goodbyes via radio and opened the airlocks. And the leaders who had created the Xenocide program were publicly tried and put to death. The civilians had not imposed a death penalty for thousands of years, but they found this particular crime a bit over the top. And of course, there were the minor tragedies you would 
expect as people found themselves in flying transports that couldn't fly anymore in similar situations. Still, it was a very small percentage of their global population. Do you know what happened to Kay? Not specifically, but I would be very surprised if it was not put to death with the rest of its would-be xenocides. Our repeater doesn't have a lot of bandwidth. It only functions at all about 30% of the time due to astrophysical alignments and manages about 10 bits per second in case when it does. We're limited because our ground agents are pretending to be amateur radio operators. We don't have proper radio telescope dishes, so we mostly get what amount to newspaper clippings. So what are things like now, four years later, M asked. Civilian civilization was mostly recovered from the insult. They were a self-sufficient world and before we gave them the fold, and they're a self-sufficient world again now without it. You may recall the elder gentle being who came down from the balcony to challenge us. It was their supreme leader for many years, and after we folded out, it was reappointed by acclamation. It led the trials of the xenocides and the organization of replacement networks for the infrastructure disabled by the fold inhibitor. It also kept awareness of the that a great wrong had been attempted in their name, for which they all had responsibility. The, the result has been similar to the situation in your country of Germany after the unpleasantness of your Second World War. There is a subpopulation of diehards who would kill anything that disagrees with them on general principle, but they're a small minority and not generally tolerated. The official and popular view is that they were betrayed by leaders who misled them and attempted to make them all agents of murder and that this can never be tolerated. It will be interesting to see how well this attitude persists across future generations. I still think we are maybe being a too harsh, making them live with it for a thousand years. Well, it's done, the curator said. How would you propose to disable it? It's deep beneath the surface of an airless world, uh, shielded by the inhibitor itself. If you get within two astronomical units of it, your ship becomes a flying brick. Right. We talked a bit more and then made our way back to the ship, which was now surrounded by a small crowd of local raiders. At our approach, there was a collective, ooh. And as we opened the hatch, one of the kittens said, how did you get it here? You'll see very soon, M said mischievously. Thanks for saving our world, he added. The secret hadn't lasted long. Fortunately, none of them recognized us as individuals. Just promised us that if you are ever in the position to do it for another people, you'll do the same yourselves. At that, the crowd did their stomping salute, and we stomped back, as we'd learned to do on our first visit. Then we closed the hatch and lifted up in perfect silence while they gaped, and in less than an hour, we were back on Earth, eating dinner. Part 22. 
Again, article. By immediate release via microphone relay. Scope. All galaxy. Section. Lifestyle and customs. Origin. Sagittarius. R22. The 6. Curator 6. Index. 807422. Translation note. Names with no recorder. Equivalents are grief places. Portrait her in RCI. 174260. Directive. Title. At an ancient ritual, a new ship gets the party together. Byline. Alpha and Beta. Galactic rotation may have carried the ancient civilization of Gamma CI-407914 out of the main line of the Sagittarius arm of our galaxy, but their traditions still require personal attendance of their allies at the ascendance rituals of their royalty. The last time these reporters covered a Gamma Royal event, it took more than half a typical lunar month to pick up all the guests and a similar interval to get them all back home, despite Gamma reserving a capital fold ship for the purpose. This time they did it in one typical solar day each way, and what made it possible was a remarkable new ship by the humans of Earth CI-1742660. Humans are as young a species as Gamma's are mature. They are only left critical path quarantine within the last few hundred years. But they are burning a bright line along their arm of the galaxy. After building an improbably compact cold drive, they created a lot of buzz with their tiny starships, all of which had originally been built for on-planet air transport before being retrofitted for space. And while those ships could manage the stunning feat of ascent to space, folding velocity translation descent to the surface all in one trip, that trip was described as either thrilling or terrifying, depending on who you asked. Those craft got to the surface with loud air-breathing combustion engines full of moving parts subjected to high temperatures and unimaginable stresses. And while our beta did take the trip between worlds on one, at that time, they didn't even have gravity plating. And so it was a bit of a wild ride. That was five typical years ago. And well, for humans, it seems five years is a heck of a long time. Photo, human M. Hatchway. Our pilot M welcomes us to the journey. We caught the new bus at Gamma joining Princess Delta to collect her guests. The human fold ship 3-in-1 features not just gravity plating, but a supergravity drive capable of accelerating it at the surface gravity of whatever cosmic object, usually the nearest star, it decides to tap. It's a much more focused version of our gravity and levitation plating, which we, are, we can't make with nanites. The humans are quite open about how they make their unusual technology, and so far nobody seems to be inclined to duplicate the heroic manufacturing effort it takes. One might at first mistake the three-in-one for a ground-to-orbit transit, but its human pilot, M. joked that the ship has never actually been in orbit around a planet. We just don't need to do that, she said as we toured the small ship which has no staterooms and comfortable but close seating for about a hundred standard form bipedal beings in its passenger hull. We pop from the surface to near space, make the fold, adjust velocity if necessary, and touch down. 
damping the surface gravity of a nearby normal star gives us 20 plus normal habitable gravities of acceleration for the velocity adjustment. And we can orient the vector in any direction without turning the ship. We can be surface to surface within galactic distances like this in half an hour. Photo, Human J attending. Human J provides streets to the passengers. While they weren't providing the usual palatial staterooms, the humans did put on a good spread of alcoholic liquors and savory snacks. While they had a few traditional exotica known to be favored by certain guests, most of the treats are from Earth and offered an interesting sample of their brew and distill in agricultural and meat cultivating skills. It also became a bit of a running gag among those of us who had experienced a three-in-one transport cycle to rip the newcomers who hadn't about the terrible accommodations until they saw for themselves how quickly the whole thing was going to be accomplished. After an incredible run of visiting eight worlds in less than a half of a typical day, we returned to Gamma with all the guests, landing and delivering them directly within the main courtyard of the Royal Palace. There was no rest for our transport host, though. During the festival, the three-in-one would go back to Earth and do a transport run through their colonies and a diplomatic run to their allies at Catacat on the far side of the galaxy, before returning to take all the guests home. The leaders of eight worlds have much to contemplate after this improbably quick ride. Humans have done things in their short years of maturity. The rest of us haven't managed in aeons, a fact that hasn't gone lost on some of our leaders, including, unfortunately, those of the word Seville, CI-1792140, which earned a curator-imposed exile by attempting to destroy both Earth and their allied world Catagat, the I-165941, with the very full-drive shenanigans they scare us with as kids. We suppose the lesson from what happened here is, don't do it. You can't stop change by murder. And why would you want to when that change holds so much wonderful promise? The human ship, three-in-one, has only been in operation for about four typical lunar months. Its operators say it is really a prototype, a conservative expression of designs that they know will work without venturing too far out of the realm of what is known but possible. We are looking forward to seeing what the humans find out to be possible next. But note. Those who are unfamiliar with humans might wonder why our guests are so wrapped up in so much textile decorations they attend us. This was not some special affectation for our royal guests. In addition to their usual technological talents, humans are known for a somewhat perverse modesty habit and instinct to conceal their natural body form. This can be most frustrating for the curious, but fortunately, their allies at Kattegat tempted the female pilot M to accept and display color honors in her trumpet defeat of their own fold ship. Here are Emma and J. M without her typical human modesty garments sporting the Raider colors, along with exalted Raider colorist O in a candid moment on the local planetary show When Not Raiding. Photo, humans candid with color. End article. The entire article was professionally matted and framed, including all three photos. 
in the hallway about 20 feet from the director's office door. I seem to recall predicting this would happen, I said carefully. So you did, M said. It doesn't bother you? Do you have any idea what this really means, M said. I guess I don't. Humans are about to become the most famous young race in the galaxy. Aliens by the trillion are going to remember Earth's curator index, 1742660, and dream about piloting tiny starships that can land on planets. And they will all wonder what a human looks like. And over most of the galaxy, it will be us. She stabbed the last photograph on the poster with her forefinger that they will see. Not our political leaders, not our rock stars, not our diplomats or our engineers. They will see the naked female who blows up old ships and her faithful statesman mate who made the improbable peace. And with that, she kissed me and turned and walked away looking as self-satisfied as I have ever seen any human being in my entire life. I realized as I detoured by the liquor store on the way back to our house that I should never underestimate the ego of a warrior test pilot. Part 23. The director caught us as we were moving our stuff from Trinity to the horse pills to do a little scouting in our new colony world candidate. Horse pills looked exactly what it was named after, a huge gel cap about seven meters long and three in diameter. It was a generous accommodation for a two-person scouting crew, and our instruments and much quieter and really less conspicuous than Grasshopper, which is being You there, Roger? <clears throat> did, did, did you get that? I, I, you know, my headphones said you're disconnected and then I'm connected again. Yeah, the audio blanked out for a second. What was the last thing you heard? Horse pill. Okay. Looks like, a giant uh, horse, looks like a giant horse pill. Yeah. Um, okay. It was generous accommodation for a two-person scouting crew and our instruments and much quieter and really less conspicuous than Grasshopper, which was being fitted to hang from the roof of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Old drives being a rather valuable commodity, Grasshoppers had found its way into the horse pill you guys might want to make a detour, the director said as he waved a tablet at us. We've gotten a rather interesting message, an invitation from a new race, but directed specifically at you two, and they want you to visit rather than them coming here. Them scanned the tablet as I asked, are we sure it's legit? Checks out with several other mature races on the CI. It's from their current royal leaders, so it would be good diplomacy to pay our respects. On it. We said together as M handed the tablet back. They named their own world in English? I asked as we floated the horse pill. Yes, they call it Hyacinth. 
Isn't that an earth flower? This is going to be different. We had hyacinths curator index and therefore its current location and other useful data. With supergravity drive and such a small ship, we were in contact with the hyacinth ground control within 45 minutes. Wait a minute, is the controller speaking English? This isn't a translation? No, not on our end, and I don't think on theirs either. Our approach took us in over a large city in the center of the town, something I'd never seen on an alien world, a tall shaft-like building towering over the rest of the city. That's impressive, I said as we approached. They want us to notice it, Em said. Our instructions are to land on its roof. Before we dropped the hatch, we could see our greeting party through the nose dome, a group of four bright feathered bipedal aliens. They had large curved beaks instead of lips, and their marks of the curator were a bow tie of yellow feathers just below the collar. One of them wore some kind of decorative body harness. We exited from our craft, and the leader with the harness offered a handshake. Welcome to Hyacinth, he said, in an oddly whistly version of English. You may refer to our race as the Hyacinth, and to myself as Ascendant Prince Harry. It must have taken some effort for you to learn our language, I said with what I hoped was a tone of respect. I couldn't figure out how he was speaking English without lips. And well worth it if it leads to the diplomatic result I hope for. Unless I am terribly mistaken, I believe you are human pilot M, slaver of fold ships, and human diplomat J, tamer of freighters. It is an honor to welcome you to our world. If you would accompany us, I would like to show you a few things. And our technology for making the presentations isn't as portable as yours. The elevator was typical alien tech, floating on repulsor plates to go up or down and locking in place with mechanical clips to access the destination floor. Earth elevator companies were already making plans to switch over and get rid of all the damn cables. How should we properly refer to you? A proper question for a diplomat, human J. You can call me Prince Henry. We suggest you just use male pronouns to refer to all of us since our genitalia are internal and we have neither primary nor secondary se- uh, external sexual characteristics. Most of our young people don't know what sex they are until they have a good reason to wonder. That must be interesting. How do your people learn their sex? Well, laying an egg is a major clue. This drew a clicking sound, which we had learned was the highest and natural form of laughter from the others. Also, being in a committed relationship with someone who lays a fertile egg is the clue. As for the inpatient, there are always tomographic medical scans, but we really don't consider it that important unless we're actively trying to procreate. He motioned for us to take seats in the semicircular table facing a display screen. So how do you like our building? I intend to make it the seat of our government once I ascend to the throne. As ascendant prince, I'm afforded much authority, but not quite that much. With the notable exception of the wonders of your own earth, we are fairly certain this is now the tallest building in the galaxy. I was told such structures were impossible with your nanite tech. 
And they were, until we learned a wonderful thing from you. This building is made of nanite matrix reinforced with glass fibers. We had to learn to make the fibers since nanites couldn't, and to teach the nanites to arrange and position them and to then bond to them as they built the matrix. We're still refining the technique, but it is going to revolutionize a few things. How do you make the fibers? We sent you several pallets of gravity plating and payment for basic machine tools and foundation hardware. Of course, we could have just bought a fiberglass spinning machine, but we wanted the ability to make as many of our own as we might want, since we are thinking we might be wanting a lot of them before long. I've heard this we from leaders before. I said a bit skeptically, do your people share this vision? Why do you think I built this building? What provoked such an interest in us? We've met dozens of species who mostly don't care what we've done and one that got real pissed off about it. Unfortunate that. A couple of years ago, you provided transport for the royal guests to, well, I can't pronounce that place's name either, but you'll remember it. Eight worlds in less than a day in your ship Trinity. I was one of your passengers and I was enthralled. Most people didn't seem to care that they might be living in the midst of history being made and others react like the civilians with terror. Maybe it's because I am young, but I see your emergence among us as an opportunity. I do not want to be the leader that lets such an opportunity pass. And I want my people to benefit from the wonders that you are likely to emerge. Your message indicated that you might have some particular wonder in mind. I do. But first, I have a couple of questions which concern your super gravity drive. I realize your full drive is not for sale because you're using your own full production. And honestly, I think that is the best use for those drives because none of us has other arts ready to make the small and nimble ships that you do. But I'm hoping that the super gravity drive is simpler and that you might be willing to part with one or two of them for a suitable return. And I also need to know how far the supergravity field can be extended from the drive itself. I'm hoping for at least a kilometer, preferably at least two. I turn to M since she's the technical expert. On the first point, we can make a lot more supergravity drives because they don't need very accurate tuning to create a graviton flux. They're physically smaller and simpler, and we can complete them faster and get a better yield than we do with the full drives. But we also have more use for them since they form a basis for exploring our own solar system's extraterrestrial resources. We can use supergravity-only ship for in-system exploration and transport. But the bottom line is that, yes, we can make a lot more of them. So with a sufficient motive, we could probably break a few loose for alternate purposes. On the second point, we've been locking them down since we don't want unsupervised people dragging asteroids around without authorization. But yes, the fields can be made several kilometers in radius. Prince Henry nodded at one of his companions and an image appeared on the screen. This is my vision, he said, a nanite-based fold ship a bit on the small side by our standards. This concept vehicle is pressured to decahedron inscribing a sphere 1.3 kilometers in diameter. 
It also has an unpressurized skirt, creating a 10-sided support pad with multiple gravity-plated cargo levels. It's fiberglass reinforced and therefore less than a third the mass of a typical similar size ship, an important feature because it has to be able to support its own weight and gravity field because a super gravity drive will make it possible for this ship to land to the surface of a world. The picture became animated and showed this, the ship touching down on a prepared landing area that would have to be a mile wide. Loading and unloading such a ship would still be time consuming compared to what your small ships manage, but much faster and simpler than it would be via shuttles to orbit. And we could manage the large population transfers and cargoes that are beyond your capacity. Em and I sucked in our breath at the same time. That's an impressive vision, I said. And totally dependent on your help. It is absolutely unworkable without your supergravity drives, which we have proven cannot be duplicated with the nanites available to us. It will be 13 Earth months before I ascend to the throne but I can make plans. I want this to be our first great project of my reign. What would you be offering us for our supergravity drive? I would actually be asking for more than just the drive. If the concept proves out, I will be building a coalition of worlds to make a manufacturing center to use your techniques to make supergravity drives for ourselves. I would ask for your help in that endeavor. You have said to others that you do not wish to hide your technology. We do not see any current added value in trying to duplicate your full drive. But this is something for which I think we can make a case. That sounds reasonable, but you still haven't told us what's in it for us. We won't just build one prototype ship. We will build two and the image on the projector split so that it showed two landed mountain-sized fold ships. And exchange for your help, we will give you the second one, the humans of Earth, to use as you wish. Part 24. By the time we visited Hyacinth and received an astonishing proposal from then Prince Henry, the outline of an economic structure between Earth and the rest of the galaxy was beginning to become visible. At the heart of this was the ultimate secret of gravity and repulsor plating. When we learned how to make these incredibly useful platings, we also learned that by far the best and most effective way to make them was with nanites. We could make plating techniques that we used to make the fold and supergravity drives, but it didn't work any better and it was more fragile and vastly more expensive. Our leaders were still reluctant to delve into primary nanite manufacturing, both because of the danger of someone building a primitive and detunable nanite fold drive and because it was the lack of nanite uh, that had forced us to explore other methods and develop our own unique capabilities. So we wrote up specifications and a catalog, possibly useful stuff we could provide that you couldn't easily make with nanites, and we published them on the Microfold network. Part 25. 
he had an insatiable appetite for repulsor plating because this was the motive force behind flying transport vehicles. It was strong enough to lift one of our small aircraft-style starships, but not anything much heavier. It wasn't adequate for velocity adjustment or for holding between regions of the galaxy, but it could power a flying car from a pack of AA batteries, and it was within the means of any interested alien community to follow our specifications for the tile types we wanted to make a steady supply of the stuff with our sunlight for power and local minerals for raw materials. In return, we supplied commodity machines and tools, bearings, drill bits, extruded and threaded rods, nuts, and bolts were all popular. It soon became common to find hybrid designs on the microgrid published uh, published on the microfold that were mostly made of nanites, but also requiring precision parts from Earth. It didn't hurt that we could easily make delivery and take our trade items to the surface of other worlds. We offered discounts to worlds that could provide landing strips because we still had a lot more converted aircraft than Trinity-style second-generation ships, but we were building those as fast as we could. The Bank of Awe of Earth was off to a solid start, if only because the Earth industries that supplied our end of the trade wanted to be paid in money. And while it was new to them, aliens who made a regular practice of dealing us quickly realized that having funds in our bank gave them great flexibility when they were making wish lists from our catalog of available goods. This was the situation when we brought the highest regent of technology development to Reagan National Airport in the horse bill. He returned to Earth with us to give his presentation to a group of dignitaries and specialists for evaluation. Do we have some time before the meeting, he asked as we landed. The regent spoke excellent English as his prince did and instructed us to call him by the human name John. Yes, we were generous with the scheduling. If it's possible, I would like to make a quick visit to your national zoo. I understand that there is an underground transport that can take us there. Fortunately, it had become common enough for aliens to be seen on the streets of human cities, particularly capitals like Washington, but we didn't attract an unworkable amount of attention. At the zoo, John skipped all the more spectacular exhibits and guided us straight to the tropical birds, where we find ourselves wasting a pair of enormous bright blue parrots. The sign called them hyacinth macaws. Just like any tourist, John took a few pictures. You named your world after them, not the flower. Yes, the birds are themselves named after the flower, but these fellows are as closely related to us as anything on your world. Their coloration is nearly identical to ours. And while we have no flighted ancestors, like these birds, our ancestors were ground-based feathered bipedal carnivores, like so many of your dinosaurs. And the curators wiped out that their, their dinosaur ancestors from an asteroid strike. Regent John laughed. In his native hyacinth way, yes, curators will do that. Our ancestors tended to stubbornly get stuck in dead in monster mode. They had to wipe out our ancestors three times before we came along. Having seen the macaws, we made our way back to the zoo entrance and then to the subway. Is there any significance to the human names you have chosen to take on? M asked as we 
hiked down the hill toward the subway station. Prince Henry took the name of one of your own royalty. He admires Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal. And for my anticipated role in our future development, he suggested the name of John Frank Stevens, an engineer who was credited with making your ambitious Panama Canal project practical. Prince Henry knows an awful lot about our history, I said as we stepped onto the subway escalator. Prince Henry wants to learn from every available source, and most of what is out there has been known by everyone for billions of years. You humans are a fascinating exception. Several hours later, we were in the Oval Office. This is not the meeting you came here for, President said matter-of-factly. But we want to know what this might mean before you present it to the rest of the world. It's a simple enough deal, John said. We want a supergravity drive for our prototype in return for a copy of our prototype surface landing and fold ship. We assume that you can outfit your ship with the supergravity and your own superior fold drive, and we would take your technical assistance setting up an independent manufacturing facility on a colony world which can make more supergravity drives. Before we could get any use out of this enormous ship, we would have an incredibly difficult job outfitting it, one of the men in attendance said. How is that? Regent John asked. This thing must have 100 square kilometers of deck. It will need appointments, furniture, plumbing, lighting, and a thousand more details to make it useful. It would suck up a generation's worth of resources, and I'm not sure what we would do with it. Oh, I don't think you understand, the regent said. All of those things are included. They are built in by the Nanite construction team. These ships have been made for aeons, and their construction has long been a well-honed art. Despite the unique ability of being able to land, which will call for a few adjustments, most of the things you mention are long ago solved problems. We will deliver you a ship that is ready to board and fly once its drives are installed and calibrated. But what about toilets, food production, distribution? Of course, galaxy-wide, there are about 20 common types of body form for hospitality purposes, deferring things like furniture size, bedding preferences, food supply and preparation and waste removal. Our usual practice is to outfit about half the ship as staterooms and the rest as functional gathering work areas, different sizes, and to outfit about half the staterooms and work areas for the species that runs the ship, with the others a varied mix. We have also studied your designs for things like toilets and sinks to tweak them to your preferred style. With nanites, it's just a software problem. It would take a huge crew, the man said. It would if you chose to do it that way. Most full ships have a large live-on crew. Then again, I understand most of your large seagoing vessels do too, and they can't fly between the stars. The president spoke up. Regent, would you like a tour of our historic White House? I need to have a word with my people. Of course. Do you allow photographs? My prince would be fascinated. In most areas we do. The guide will let you know. He slapped the intercom and said, Teresa, we have an alien with the most beautiful blue feathers you've ever seen who needs a tour of our house. After Regent John left, the president eyed the man who had spoken up. M and J, I don't think you've met the Secretary of Defense, he said. 
Actually, I have, sir, M said. He gave me a medal once. What is your problem, H? The president asked him. This is an enormous and unexpected undertaking, he said. We have no budget for it, no schedule, no personnel, and it promises to dwarf important existing programs. H. Stop thinking about blowing shit up for a change and think about what this means. Within the next 20 years, they are telling me about 5 billion people are going to lose their homes due to sea level rise. They will need to go somewhere, but most of the somewhere they could go on Earth is already occupied by other people who aren't going to want them there. They will need to eat and at least half of our arable land is also going to go under or become desert. Maybe more. The very manufacturing facilities that our blue friend here is so interested in are going to be flooded and destroyed by storms with ever-increasing frequency. Have I left anything out? Am I blowing it out of proportion? No, sir, he said quietly. This ship, this one ship, could save our damn bacon. We have the colony worlds. The aliens have wondered why we planted flags on so many of them. That was thinking ahead. But we also have to get the people there, and more importantly, the infrastructure and the industries to support them. It's been happening, but it's too slow. M and J, would you say that one of these ships could transport an entire city all at once? its buildings on those skirt decks and its population in the staterooms. I'd say that's exactly what it's designed to do, M said. And Prince Henry is an avid fan of our species, I added. He may have anticipated this need and constructed an offer he knew he would be foolish to refuse. And we won't, the president said with finality. We'll Regent John present his offer, but the only question will be whether we tell them to paint a UN flag on the hull or a US flag. One way or the other, we're giving them their damn gravity drop and we're gratefully taking the ship. The next day, the regent made his case to the United Nations General Assembly and the president followed with his own. The vote wasn't even close. The ship would have a UN flag and the deal would set a myriad of smaller preparatory plans in motion all across the earth. Part 25. As the Laputa began construction in orbit around Hyacinth, the attention of our work group changed dramatically. Even assuming that the Nanite construction teams delivered us a ready-to-use ship with toilets and power and food preparation arranged, the ability to transport large populations suddenly required us to prepare places to transport them to. And as with the transport ship, this suggested the need for large off-world infrastructure we had no way to build. The Hyacinth were themselves busy with the ship project, but they suggested that the construction of cities was the thing all of their peers had taken on at some point. And when we put a request in for bids on the microfold, we got many responses. 
some effort went into evaluating these, and we visited all the finalists in the horse bill to size them up. The first winning bid came from a race we had never dealt with before. We had no human name for them. The ancestors had been herbivorous grazers, and even though the curators had made their heads and uh, had made their ancestors omnivorous, they still had many features, like eyes on the side of their heads and wide nostrils above a powerful jaw that we associated with grazing prey animals. They wore fur, natural explosion of uh, uh, colored patterns, with only the mark of the curators, the small of their backs being somewhat. Uh, consistent between individuals. I dubbed them the city makers, and it stuck until we started letting other city projects a few years later. The city makers were offered a human fold drive in return for an empty city ready to receive 5 million human inhabitants. The city had to provide running water, power distribution, drainage, sewage, and food production. We learned in the late going that that last item was actually possible. In addition to nanites, alien tech included techniques for growing all sorts of meat and vegetable matter in a continuous stream. The end result was suitable for preparation by the usual cooking techniques and could be made hard to distinguish from actual earth food. With nanites, such a city would take about the same amount of time to complete as the fold ship Laputa. It was a bigger project, but since it wasn't in orbit, it was easier to supply the nanites with raw materials. Our first city would be located on the fourth world M&I had claimed, which had been called Pan for its Pangea-like single continent. Like the Earth in the time of the dinosaurs, it had an ocean at both poles and no ice caps, so uh, it had been stable for millions of years. It also had storms, but those tended to be limited to its great ocean. It had huge inland estuaries where the continent was beginning to split apart, which were relatively peaceful, though. This gave it tens of thousands of kilometers of relatively safe shoreline on which to relocate people who are used to living near the water, but wary of the bad things that water could do. The search for new colonies was closing. We had claimed enough worlds to meet any reasonable need, and our leaders didn't want to make it look like we were going to march across the galaxy. This meant that the services Em and I had been providing were really not needed anymore. While we were contemplating this, the human form queer came to our house for barbecue, as he liked to do on Friday nights, and he slipped me a note. You should visit this world while you can, he said. Can I ask why? Oh, you can ask, but I will, uh, you will only get an answer if you go there while you can. It wasn't quite as far from Earth as Katia, but it was a similarly brutal journey for the average fold ship. Next time we went out on a routine mission, we made it there in less than half an hour in the horse bill. We were greeted immediately. Earthship horse pill, welcome to speed. Please follow these entry coordinates. We followed the directions and found ourselves in a courtyard in what looked to be a very old city that had originally built and built by nanites, but gradually converted to more picturesque materials. 
the native who greeted us on the ground was more human-looking than most of the aliens we'd met. He was mostly naked and hairless and concealed his crotch with a loincloth. He had hair on his forearms and calves, but not on his head. Don't be deceived, he said as we debarked. I look like your host, but I only walk among them. My colleagues sent you to us. You're a curator, M said. He nodded. You're naturally speaking English without a translator, I added. Relatively easy for these people. Allow me to introduce you to their leader. We wound our way through a city towards some kind of temple or palace complex, and we passed dozens of people, all of whom seemed young and strong. Alien physiology can be deceiving, but age is the thing that ravages in common ways across the galaxy. And by the time we met our host, we were wondering what happened to all the old people. You may call me President Franklin, she said. We only knew her sex because her title declared it. The loincloth concealed her genitals, and our her hosts weren't mammalians. You've come a long way to meet with us. Please let us offer hospitality. That led to something like a state dinner, introductions, and amidst small talk. Finally, the president asked this key question. Do you know why you have been asked here? Honestly, we don't, M said. Of course not. Our secret is not well kept, but it neither is it extensively broadcast. I understand you are aware that Curators can individually live for millions of years. Yes, we know that, I said. We can, too. I am over four million of our years old, which I believe is about 6.5 million of your Earth years. Of course, our curator guest is about 10 times older than I am. You are still among the easiest of our children to work with, the curator said. We have been asked to evaluate you. The curators do not dispense the gift of longevity to their children, but we have been known to do that. Is there a price, MS? Oh, no, that would be truly evil. There is an evaluation. I have to say that our, our initial read of your species is not promising. You have overpopulated your home world which is why you need colonies. The first thing you must do to be long-lived as individuals is to curb the rate of, birth, uh, of reproduction. Tell me about yourselves, M and J. Are you a mated pair? Have you reproduced? We shook our heads. It was never a priority for us, M said. And now you are at your species menopause, are you not, M? Do you feel lost at missing your chance to reproduce? A lot of my people do, but I don't, she said. I've given my species worlds. Child rearing would seem anticlimactic. The president looked at me. I couldn't have said it better, I added. We will need to do a fairly detailed bioassay of both of you. It will be somewhat invasive, but we need to determine which of the curator's building blocks got included in your genome and phenotype. From that, we can determine what might be possible with our technology, subject, of course, to your consent. I don't think anybody back home would forgive us if we denied you. That is a poor reason to agree. 
Do you agree to do this for yourself? Do you want to live longer? Yes, we said almost in unison. Have you considered why you would want such a thing? Em and I looked at one another, but baffled. You have looked beyond reproduction. For what reason do you want long life? I, I want to know what happens next, I said, and Em nodded solemnly. I guess that sounds a bit lame. On the contrary, it is one of the best reasons to want long life, the president said. The word you should probably use to name us in your language is witness. The reason that we hate death and is that we hate forgetting and relearning the same lesson over and over again. Our longevity is not a privilege. It is a responsibility to observe what happens and learn from it. Be assured, we are not. You know, we are paying close attention to what your species is doing. As a new thing, it commands our attention. We looked at the curator, who was being very quiet. Our friends, the curators, have their own reasons for living a long time, but their project is not ours. We are, of course, grateful to them for creating our world and our species, but we are watching them too. We spent the next two days in the medical facility undergoing all manner of scans, samplings, and tests. Afterward, we rested for a couple more days before we were summoned to hear the results. Your metabolism gave us no surprises, the top medic said. We could make you live as long as we do. But we won't, the president said. Em and I looked at her. Your species has done grand things, but you are still very immature. What we will give you is a modest boost. The medic offered her some a wooden box. This serum will increase your maximum life expectancy from your current 70 to 100 to from 2 to 300 of your years and will also cure most of your worst diseases of age, such as coronary disease, cancer, and most forms of dementia. It's a simple thing for us, which you would almost certainly work out for yourselves within a few hundred years, but we think it would be useful to you to start learning maturity now, and it's hard to do that when you practically die in infancy. Come back to us in a few thousand years, and we may be willing to get, help you get to another level. All of us alive now will be dead by then, though, Em said. Mostly so, the president agreed. It's still a boon, I said, one we can use, uh, because I think you're right about our maturity problem. We contemplated, we completed our assigned tour and returned home. The serum had been designed to be replicated by nanites, so aliens were consulting to contract for that. Em and I didn't need it because we had already been treated in the course of our bioassay. We went out on another tour, but within a month or so, the horse bill was decommissioned to free up the full drive for a larger ship. Em and I decided to retire, and we ended up taking the Laputa to Pan to settle the first large off-world human city, Newer Orleans. <laughs> Uh, so, <clears throat> questions from so, the gallery. So, so I'm confused. They're not. They're not just giving the life extension of those two. They're giving it to human species as a whole. 
Yes, but modest life extension. They sure. could. Uh, they 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 have the technology to uh, let us live hundreds of thousands of years, but they're giving us the technology to live a few hundred more than we naturally do. Which is, you know, which is still incredible. Was that in itself a test, though? If we said we'll see you in a few thousand years, was the idea? You'll see. All right. All right. <laughs> We'll see the witnesses again. I fucking love it, Roger. I fucking <laughs> love it, man. You really, you really, you really do, as you say, tuck in the tuck in the sheets to your writing. I appreciate that. So, want more? Well, I have to be finished in eight minutes. Oh, like yeah, we don't like have I, time. Like then I told you, I gotta run. yeah. Um, All right. So we'll start the next one at part twenty-six. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. No, so, I, yeah, it was just, it's a whole fascinating parallel between you keep seeing the nanites and then with that which arose naturally. Or not naturally, but without nanites. Yeah. Well, and, uh, uh, you know, and none of this was like planned. That was yeah, yeah. something that kind of arose, um, you know, I, I, it, it literally started with, you know, I wrote the line and the and the curator popped out. And it's like, okay, then everyone's going like, well, how did he do that? And it's like, I don't know, I did it myself. It was just, it, it sounded cool. But then I had to figure out how I did it and what the technology was behind that and how they were doing this shit and how they were around for so long. And so it started knitting itself out, you know, in the background. In, in a way, <clears throat> in a way, there's some like meta narrative there in that planning out and plotting and refining a story is kind of like nanites. It's like you sort of have a leg up, you know, mm-hmm. when you're writing a story, you can go back and look at what makes sense and what doesn't and fill in the plot holes. And if you can't fill it in, you can just go nix the thing that created the plot hole. But when you're writing every week and just sort of move forward, that's kind of like things rising organically, right? You know, like an atomic bomb is possible, but no one ever had a need for it. And it's like, well, at this one weird place, they did have a need to go in and master it because they arose this way. So time and time again, you, you see where the nanites are, you know, for the most part, they're a blessing, but it also does, you know, it's the kid growing up with a yeah. silver spoon in his mouth versus like, you know, like Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Chase Manhattan, right? He grew up rich as fuck, but Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, grew up in like the Jewish ghetto. And you can kind of see which one's like scrappier, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a... And that, and that was like the entire uh, basis <laughs> of the story is that humans are humans, you know, we are what we are because we weren't curated. We weren't given yeah. any of these gifts. Yeah. But now we've gotten in touch, you know, with the whole galactic ecosphere. And we're learning, first of all, what we were denied. And second, that we've done some things better than any of these other species have. Because we had to do it ourselves and we bypassed the limits that were put on the nanites deliberately. It's like, yeah, your dad gives you the car, 
but it's got a GPS in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, and uh, what we just saw here in the very last episode is that, uh, yes, life extension is possible. Extreme life extension is possible. But the, the people who do the life extension thing uh, aren't going to give us the extreme life extension yet because no one knows what the fuck we're going to do. You know, yeah. and it's like we've overpopulated our world. We created a huge problem. But on the other hand, yes, yeah, it, it is a problem that we practically die in infancy. So as, as, as they see it, so they'll give us the boost, uh, you know, the short term life extension. It doesn't make you younger. Yeah. It just keeps you from getting older for a bit. That will become an issue in the next couple of episodes. Uh, that, uh, yeah, it, the, the life extension treatment that the witnesses gave us doesn't make you any younger. So if you're already old, you're still old. It just keeps you from getting even older as fast as you would. Um, but other things are possible. And that will become an issue within a few episodes. Yeah, again, it's the whole, you know, no one ever produced an A-bomb because they didn't have to. I mean, well, now there's the interest of, like, yeah. well, like, no one, let's see what they do when they're run, you know, when the water's rising, when the, uh, what is arable, irritable? The land. Arable. Arable. What happens when the arable land starts disappearing as well, and it it compounds it. You have the amount of food producing mm-hmm. land disappearing, and then you have the amount of human habitable land disappearing. It's a lot of people are going to die. Well, yeah, but I mean, all of in from the curator's viewpoint, all of humanity has always been. Well, they're going to die this time, and then they jump over the hurdle and they go, "Well, they're going to die this time." At a certain point, they're kind of, you know, it's like watching the Cinderella team yeah. in, like, college basketball make it to the big game. And it's like, now you're just like, fuck it. Let's see how they roll. Like, let's see what's going on. Yeah. This is a very dark future history, though. Uh, within a, with, within the next hundred years or so after our current place in the story, seven billion people are going to die. Well. My, my readers didn't know that at this point. Well. On that, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> Roger ending with a ray of sunshine. Um, as I always do. As he always does. Um, uh, because we all read the first chapter of the Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, which was such a sunny, rosy way of looking. At the I, but it's still why it's my favorite book is because I think it's the most realistic. Yeah, that that's 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 me. I... I'm 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 not afraid to look at the the bad thing that is almost certain to happen. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, it's sort of like those movies you watch growing up as a kid, like Home Alone or something, or you know, where the bad guy always gets taken out, you know, by the cops at the end, and the guy gets the girl, and it's like no, much more realistic would be like the bad guys getting away, paying off the authorities, like you know, and it's like the much less sexy but more realistic, like. You know, the good World War II movie is like, and then they killed all the Nazis. And it's like, no, or we brought them over here on like a secret ship yeah. and gave them high level positions in our in our military industrial complex. Like that's it's not as fun, but it's 
Uh, it's, it's more realistic. You can uh, identify with it more. But like I told you beforehand, I now I got 31 minutes, so I got to run to the store. Um, Roger Williams, author of Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, wearing one of the TPC merch and author of Curators, the man himself, we will resume next Sunday, my good sir. God bless, Roger. Stay safe out there. Recording Williams stopped. Kerrigan, 2028.